If tomorrow starts without me There's something you should know While I hold you close, never let you go Hello and welcome to The Broken Pack, a podcast focused on giving adult survivors of sibling loss a platform to share their stories and to be heard, something that many sibling loss survivors state that they never have had. Sibling loss is misunderstood. The Broken Pack exists to change that and to support survivors. I'm your host, Dr. Angela Dean. In this episode, Jen shares her story of her love and her grief for her sister, Melissa, and how her loss has changed her personally and influenced her work trajectory. Links to Jen's work can be found in the show notes. So today we're joined by Jen. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I was wondering if you wanted to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself before we get started with a deep story of what's going on. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, ben, I live uh, suburbs of Philadelphia. I live with my husband and I have two kids. They're nine and five. Professionally, I am a grief educator and coach. I'm also a clinical social worker. I had a big transition in the last year after my sister died. I was working as a life coach and uh, no, everything changed after she died and I mm-hmm. found myself on a different trajectory. Uh, I'm really excited to be here because I think it's so important that we talk about grief. One of my big things is just like truth telling so much power and healing, I think, in telling our stories. And so I appreciate the opportunity to to come on and share mine. And I appreciate what you're doing to give people a platform to share these stories. Thank you for that. And I am glad that this will be part of your healing process as well. Were you a grief educator before your sister? I was not. I was not. So I had worked for 15 years as a social worker, ended up, I did some life coaching that was pretty transformative for me and ended up and wanted to work for myself and kind of got a little burnt out on the social work scene and worked for other people and and really felt called to do my own thing. So I started out doing the life coaching and, and it was going great and I was feeling really good about it. And then my sister died I don't know, every part of me rearranged and it just didn't feel like the right thing Mm -hmm. anymore. And I wasn't planning to become a grief educator, but I kept talking about grief all the time, (laughs) everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Even like interviews that I was doing as life coaching ended up being interviews about grief. And I was like, I think this is just sort of space I want to be in right now. And maybe as I thought more about it, just knowing myself and my strengths and my interests, I was like, oh, I think that this might just be the place where I want to be. And because I really had a shock to the system, having my own life-changing loss, learning how grief illiterate our culture is and how difficult it can mm-hmm. be to find good support. And so I saw an opportunity to to move into that space. And, and the more I did, the more it, it felt like a place I wanted to be. For sure. That makes absolute sense. I can somewhat relate to that too. So before we get into the story, I have a question, follow-up mm-hmm. question on that. As a licensed mental health professional who didn't work with grief, did you feel you had enough training or understanding of grief, specifically sibling loss? No. <laughs> so it's been my <laughs> experience that most mental health professionals don't get much training in grief, and I was no exception to that. 
And the training that I did get was, I don't even remember, but it was 15 years ago when I was in grad school. But it was probably like a few lessons on the stages of grief, which are, you know, the outdated model at this point. So I went out and sought additional training to kind of help me. And I'm continuing to do more training. I'm enrolled in another training course now. And I started out just reading. I just, because as a, I think Mm -hmm. as a social worker, like, my first thing is when after my sister died, once I got my bearings a little bit, was I went looking for resources. And so I was looking for all the books and all the groups and all the things. And as I started reading about grief, I realized just what a misunderstanding I had of it and how little we are taught how to live with grief and how to support people through grief. And it felt like a revelation as I started reading more. And so then I wanted to learn more. There's so much to learn. We have we all have a lot to learn, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Your, your experience was similar to mine. That's how the Broken Pack formed is there's not a lot of resources out there. Mm-hmm. All right. So before we talk about losing your sister, what would you like me or our listeners to know about her? About Melissa? Yeah, oh, about Melissa. Gosh. Um, she was... Um, she was funny. She was brilliant. She was super compassionate. Uh, she was a truth teller. So she was the person who would say the thing everyone was thinking, but say it in a very kind way. And everyone would be relieved mm-hmm. and laugh. She brought a lot of uh, tea to the room. She uh, worked as a veterinary technician. So her passion was animals. She was a musician. She was an artist. She was a nature lover, an incredible sister and friend and wife. And aunt, as time continues and I learn more from other people, like hearing her stories and things like that, like just the mark that she left. It's nice to hear that. And she was a really special person and had a smile that made everybody feel good and lit up the room. She brought the energy in a really beautiful way. Mm-hmm. Sounds lovely. <laughs> yeah. And well, I thank called you for her sister. You're welcome. I actually didn't call her Melissa. I called her sister. That's what we called each other. It's so... <laughs> Sister. Yeah. <laughs> Sister. I don't even know. We're we were very silly together. And at some point twenty years ago, we were talking in silly voices and somehow that's <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Would you like me to refer to her as that? No, you can call her about? Melissa. Just okay. if uh I might call okay. her sister now and then. But normally that was just if I was talking to yeah. her, but sometimes when I'm talking about mm-hmm. her, I'll say that too. <laughs> Probably makes you feel a little bit closer mm-hmm. to hold yeah. on to that. Yeah. So let's transition to the story of her loss. I know that in listening to a different podcast, you spoke on, you, she shared this idea of not always sharing the whole story. And I, I love that there are certain places that you can and can't share your story. So that said, what would you like us to know about the loss? And your story around the loss. Yeah, a really long journey. So she was diagnosed with a brain tumor April of 2016. And they thought it was benign. So it was really weird. Like my sister just gets in touch with me at work and was like, I have a brain tumor. She had had some like balance issues and vertigo for over a year that they had been trying to fix different ways. And I'm not sure why they didn't do an MRI. They thought it was benign. Uh, they were going to go in, they were going to take it out. She was going to have a long recovery time, but all signs pointed to 
like it's not cancerous is what we thought because the one in two million chance that it was a cancerous tumor so the kind of cancer that my sister had was is extremely rare in adults um so when they got in there they discovered otherwise she did radiation did not have to do chemo and actually um, a few months later was cancer free but the thing that really changed for her in those first few years was the removal of the tumor left a giant hole in her cerebellum, which if you know anything about the brain, mm. how the brain works, the cerebellum like impacts basically everything. Right. So, so her speech was impaired. He couldn't walk unassisted. Basically, all of the things that we think of that make ourselves ask the things that we do, she couldn't do anymore. So she couldn't work anymore. She couldn't drive anymore. She couldn't play music. She couldn't go hiking. She couldn't make art. She had difficulty speaking. And of course, that's, you know, make all kinds of assumptions about you and your cognition when actually you just have a motor issue um, and difficulty speaking. So it was a really difficult transition because we got through the cancer and it was like, okay, she's going to live as far as we know for now. But there were so many losses along the way. I mean, you can't have all of those things taken away from you and not be a different person. And mm -hmm. one of the things that was happening is that they kept pushing the timeline for when they thought she was going to improve or get better. They started throwing all the speech and physical therapy and occupational therapy at her. The brain's very mysterious and how it heals or doesn't heal. And so we thought for a while that she was going to get better. We thought she was going to regain a lot of those skills. And after a year or two, I think we all sort of privately came to the conclusion that things were not going to change. My sister and I were incredibly close. So I think for me, I just had a hard, I didn't, I couldn't connect with her in the same ways. She couldn't talk on the phone. She couldn't play with my kids in the same ways. And so it was what we thought was the big challenge. It was like learning how to adjust to this big shift in our lives. And I had just started to get to the point, it took me a long time, where I had to sort of accept that things were different and that we were going to have to find new ways to be together. And then right around that time, which was in 2020, of course, it's also when the pandemic hit, I discovered that her cancer had come back. But the thing about my sister's tumor is that they actually think it might have been there since childhood. Like it was very slow growing. And so it was like, it's back, but we don't see any indication or reason right now to do chemo or anything like that. So we were just waiting and watching, waiting and watching for a long time. And like medically, it's super complicated. And I don't even know how to go into the whole story without taking way too much time and making it very complicated. But basically, there was a turning point in the summer of 2021 and it was frustrating because so I live in Pennsylvania. She was in North Carolina. Her husband did an amazing job, like managing her care and taking care of her. But there were just some things going on medically that I didn't understand. Like it looked to me like she was in bad shape, even though everyone was telling us the scans look fine. Could see declines in her cognition. She was having a lot of trouble eating. And, you know, me being a social worker, I just like releases to start talking with all of her doctors and was essentially trying to manage her medical care from three states away because it just took a quick turn, even though the doctors were telling us that everything was fine or looked pretty good, which is like a whole nother tangent I could go down about 
medically, mm-hmm. how things are handled and how we talk to people about dying and death in the medical community and prepare people for some of those realities. Uh, she ended up going into palliative care. And the day that palliative care told us we might need to start considering hospice, they sent a hospice nurse out that day. This was in December of 2021. They sent a nurse out that day. The nurse listened to her lungs and said, I think this is her last night. So it was like we thought we were starting the process of hospice. And then all of a sudden she was dying. So she had had recurring pneumonia. And when the nurse listened to her lungs, and she'd been in and out of the hospital, it was being treated. But we could tell like it kept coming back. Um, All of a sudden I had to hop on a plane. I had to find someone to take my kids because I really wanted my husband to come with me. Have an amazing group of friends who rallied in, got my kids. Someone picked me up in Atlanta at 10 o'clock at night and drove me to Asheville, North Carolina at one o'clock in the morning and got my husband and I there. And then she died on December 10th. So I got there in time, but she wasn't a week. I had no idea. We were even close to the last time when I had seen her in November because I had been going down there about once a month to help out with her care and provide some caregiving. Cancer just started spreading to her spine and There were all kinds of complications that made it difficult or impossible to treat or difficult or impossible to tell what was going on until it just became a snowball. And then it was, this is it. This is probably her last night. Uh, That was a huge shock, especially after we'd spent five years thinking that we were in the clear. Mm -hmm. I was able to be there with her. I was not there at the moment that she passed. I had stepped outside. If you had asked me, what's the thing that you can't survive? I would have said. I can't survive the death of my sister. I mean, I remember when she first got diagnosed, my first was not her, just not anybody but her, not mm-hmm. her, can't handle it um, if something happens to her. So I was really in a rough place for, I'm still, I wouldn't say it's now, right? <laughs> you know, it doesn't, doesn't work like that. But I am a pretty joyful person by nature. And... It was a very surreal experience to not really care about anything anymore, to see my kids and feel not connected with them. For me, it was a complete disintegration of self when my sister died. Everything was dark. Nothing was good. Nothing was, I had no hope. I couldn't see the future at all and ended up basically taking a grief sabbatical from my coaching practice. I had some clients that I hung on to. I didn't take anybody new. I was, I stopped doing any newsletters or marketing or anything. Everything stopped. And uh, last year, 2022 was not a good year. Mm. Took me a long time and I'm still finding my way after that. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. She's my only sibling. So that's been Mm -hmm. a really uh, dynamic too, because I was never prepared to be an only child. And there's a lot that's changed in my world now that I'm the only living child in my family. Absolutely. Was she older or younger? She was younger. So she was two years younger than me. And my parents are divorced. So they divorced when I was nine and she was seven. And then they both remarried two years later. She was my family. I mean, she was my constant. So when we would go back and forth between our parents' houses and we were getting integrated into these blended families at a young age and all of these things. She was my constant. I think of her as, I don't know, to me, she was like the through line of my life, like the beginning to end. Like I thought it was my center of gravity for 40 years because she was 40 when she died. I'm 43 now. 
and um, always imagined that we would be there. I imagined that we would get older and the women in my family live into their 90s. So I thought one day it'd just be me mm-hmm. and my sister like living together. Been some past. The kids have grown and we're doing old age together. It never occurred to me that I would have to do life without her. And that just didn't even feel like a possibility. Mm-hmm. So we were, I think, in some ways extra close because just because we liked each other. Well, I mean, we fought too, right? We were siblings, but because of our family dynamics, we relied a lot on each other. And in some ways, she was the most constant person in my life for most of my life. Which is what I think makes sibling loss so unique is that we expect them to be there Mm -hmm. for so long. Like at some point, we expect our parents to be gone, unfortunately, or other people come and go, but our siblings, we expect to be there in some capacity. Right. Yeah, I don't think people realize like I'm like, that's the longest relationship of your life, your sibling. Now, it looks mm. different for everybody. Not everyone's close with their sibling. Right. For me, that was my supposed to be in my head, like my 90, 95 year most important relationship, like mm-hmm. beginning to end. And yeah, and our, our spouses, our kids, whatever, they come into our lives later. But she was the bookend, I thought. And one of the things that really overwhelmed me when she died was just thinking about how long I was going to be without her. Like, my God, I, mm-hmm. how am I going to do 50 more years, you know, if I'm lucky enough to get that time without her? It overwhelms me sometimes, but I'm like, I know it's not helpful to think about the next 50 years, so, but I try not to. But, but you know, our brains go there, right? <laughs> well, it's hurting in some way to think through the logic of it, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, okay, I've lived 40 years oh and then that's shocking but that's that's potentially 50 years without this person that was very grounding to you mm-hmm. and it sounds like you grounded each other through the the chaos of, of going back and forth yes yeah we were each other's uh, point in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and just friends also the person i told every little you know i sent goofy texts to and I'm like no one else cares about except for my husband and my parents too. But they're just little things in my life that I'm like, nobody will appreciate this like my sister would, which is true for every loss. So you have these unique things and you in these unique relationships. And there's those little pieces. And then there's the bigger pieces of all the family dynamics mm-hmm. um, and how that has changed for me now that I don't have a sibling. Mm-hmm. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, I'm Dr. Angela Dean host of the Broken Pack podcast. If you've lost a sibling, you viscerally understand the complexity of your loss and how isolating it can feel. Sibling loss is misunderstood. And that's why I created an in-person retreat called the Sibling Grief Refuge. It's happening this August 15th through the 18th near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This retreat will include grief-focused activities and sessions curated and facilitated by compassionate grief experts, including me. It's a space where your grief, your loss, and your sibling will be honored and understood. In addition to grief discussions, education, support, and togetherness, you will be tapping into your continuing bond with your sibling through multiple activities, such as going on a photo walk or sensory exploration and mindful walks. In our remembrance ceremony, you'll have further opportunity to honor your sibling, share your story, and hear about others' siblings. For more information, visit thebrokenpack.com forward slash retreat, or just head to thebrokenpack.com and click the Sibling Loss Retreat link in the top menu. Spaces are limited, so secure your spot today. 
Let's walk this path of sibling grief together. Now back to the show. That is always such a weird question now, right? How, like, how many siblings do you have? Or saying, even hearing you say, I'm an only child, now that's an adjustment. Parents are age. You know, my dad's turning 80 tomorrow. My parents are older, they're aging. And you know, one of the things that keeps me up at night sometimes is, oh my God, I'm I'm going to have to, like when my parents die, I'm going to have to do everything. I'm going to have to deal with that loss. Mm-hmm. In some ways by myself, I won't have that sibling. And like my stepmother died about a year before my sister was diagnosed. And it was very comforting to have my sister, to have my stepbrothers who I'm not nearly as close with. We didn't really grow up together in the same way. But just to know that we were in it together. And I sometimes think, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to do all that by myself. I'm going to have to, even just the little things, like I'm going to have to go clean out their house and my sister's not Mm going to be there to help me. And decisions that are going to have to be made as they get older, I'm going to be navigating that by myself. And even the little things like, my dad is hard to shop for. What to get What to get dad for Christmas? Like, I, I don't have my sister anymore to be like, what, what the hell are we going to get dad? It's just little things like that. It's never really thought about what it would be like to do those things alone. Mm-hmm. So with the terminal illness, we tend to think of that being long and expected. And in some ways you had, and then you got relief from that. And it was rather sudden. It goes back to your point of, Oftentimes, physicians are not talking about death in a way that's helpful to patients, Mm -hmm. which I see in my professional work as well. Uh, But as that happened, because it was so sudden, I wonder how supported you felt in that immediate aftermath. And I'm lucky. And in some ways, when you lose somebody, I don't know that there's, it ever feels like there's enough support just because it's such a, such an abyss and your needs are so mm-hmm. ever-changing and you don't even know what you need. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, I'm very aware that I was lucky because I knew, knew in the summer that something was wrong with my sister and my friends were very aware mm-hmm. that I was worried and knew that I was talking with her doctors and knew that I was traveling down to North Carolina once a month and all of those things. And I'm also a person who's very open, which not everyone is. And so for me, Everybody knew what was going on because I mm-hmm. I felt like I needed to talk about it. And also, because of my profession, a lot of my friends are therapists, social workers, mental mm-hmm. health professionals. So my circle of people is a circle of people who are comfortable kind of rushing in in a crisis, comfortable with just sitting with me in dark places. Having said that, I think there was a unique aspect to losing someone during the pandemic because... Mm-hmm. I really feel like my friends and my support system were amazing. And I wonder what it would have looked like if everyone in my life weren't at this place of complete pandemic exhaustion and burnout where they only had so much to give. Almost all of them are parents. And so they just, they had limited resources um, and were very generous with what they did have. Did feel supported. It's lucky people knew how close my sister and I were. I had a friend that I went to high school with who knew us a long time. And the first thing she said was, I don't know how to explain to people how horrible this is because just to say that she's your sister doesn't feel adequate. You guys are like one soul, one heart, two bodies. That's the only way I can describe mm-hmm. it. And so I know that not everyone who loses a sibling gets kind of support and attention. And so I feel grateful that I did do that. Now, 
professionally, I had a harder time finding the right support. Mm -hmm. I was very grateful to have friends, um, people in my life who who got it and a husband who got it and who was just amazingly supportive and let me have whatever I need. But I also know not everyone is that lucky. What was challenging professionally? Was it your work or you finding someone? Finding support. So I started within seven months. I was with three different therapists because I just did not feel like the first two people that I saw understood how to just like me be sad. I remember I sat in a session with one of my friends the first therapist that I saw and I said this was when I thought my sister was dying but she hadn't died yet and I said I feel like my insides are being clawed out and she said well that Mm. seems a little harsh and I'm like yeah it is a little harsh that's how it Mm feels like she was trying to like let's reframe that in a different way and I'm like no let's just let me feel that my insides are being clawed out that would be helpful so part of it was trying to find a, a therapist part of it was trying to find a support group I had a really hard time finding support for adult sibling loss. I had to be extremely tenacious. And I think because I am a social worker professionally, finding resources and doing that sort of thing is part of what I do and my go-to in, in crisis. It took me a long time to find an adult sibling support group. I went to several support groups that were not like online kind of things that were not terribly helpful. I had, couldn't find books. Bo- very many books on sibling loss. Mm -hmm. The ones that I found, some of them were good and some of them I just like to the side. I think it's hard too that to find support in early grief. Like I think a lot of grief support is oriented to making meaning and whatever. But in those first, that in that beginning where you're just trying to survive, like figure out how to be alive and find a lot of support. I did find Megan Devine, who I adore, and um, yes. and her work was really helpful for me. Yeah, it was just hard. I knew I wanted people who understood. And even in my circles, I had people who had lost parents. I had pe- I didn't know anybody who had lost a sibling. So it just felt very lonely. Yeah, for sure. And you knew what you needed. So it sounds like you didn't stay in a, in a place that wasn't supportive too long. Right. right. Which I mean, again, that was me knowing professionally what right. my expectations were and um, what, what felt like good support to me and what didn't. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was hard because I'm in the Philadelphia area. And that's, that's another thing too, is like I'm in a major city. So that helps me have access to resources and did find a sibling law support group. And we, we actually are still in touch. We see each other once a month or so. I feel like I'm, I'm just lucky that I found the right people, that we stuck together. Like, it doesn't always look that way. So it's it's hard. I just felt like there was a void when I went looking for adult sibling loss support. Because there is. There is a yes. void there. Yes. <laughs> I'm on the, I'm in Pennsylvania, too, but on the other side of the state. So oh, okay. Great. Near Pittsburgh. Yeah. It's also hard to be a therapist. And right. Do you feel that you have the support you need now? Yes and no. Have a supportive therapist. I still have my support group people. It's interesting because I feel like what I'm noticing, and this is not anything that anyone in my life is doing. This is something that I'm doing. This is an internal story that I have. Mm-hmm. It's been over a year. It's hard for me to feel like my grief can still take up space. I feel like it took up so much space. Like everyone in my life 
husband, my friends, they've been here for a lot of it. And in my head, I've noticed lately there's sort of ticker that I have that I've done to myself. Like, how long am I allowed to keep letting this take up space in my relationships? Mm. Uh, I find I'm keeping it closer to the vest when it does show up for me. It's like there shouldn't be a clock on it. And I know there's not a clock on mm-hmm. it. But in my head, everyone's probably tired of hearing about this. Like, certainly so do you find yourself holding back? back? Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember thinking after my sister died, I did feel support in my inner circles. But I wish that we had, I wish we still were Black. For later, mm-hmm. after our people died. I feel like there was no way to signal to the world. I am not okay. I'm not myself right now. Mm-hmm. And all those rituals. I mean, my sister, when she died, uh, it was December of 2021. And there was COVID surge again at that time. So, like, we couldn't have a full uh, memorial service. A lot of those, like, rituals and things that we have in place, which are already sparse and few and far between in, in mm-hmm. our culture. That part, I didn't feel just felt like some people, the people closest to me got it, but all my outer circles, I got all the platitudes and mm-hmm. all the, uh, you know, in for two weeks and then people were done as though after two weeks at all. <laughs> it's all better. Right. Mentioned joy today, but I also recently re-listened to your, your talk on joy and grief. Would you mind sharing more about what that's been like for you personally in this process? Yeah. If you don't want to, that's fine. No, I do. I'm happy to answer anything. Uh, I am a, by nature or by nurture, who knows? Uh, I'm a pretty joyful person. I'm always a person who has been just obsessed with being alive. I, I think the world is so beautiful, even though it's ugly too. And I love big and I just have big feelings. And I just like a person who's very engaged with the world around me um, and really want to soak it all in. And has always sort of believed in one way or another that things are going to work out, you know? Mm -hmm. And my relationship with joy is just different now. I still, it felt for me for a long time after my sister died, like that part of me was not accessible. I kind of feel like it was buried or in hibernation. And I, I think there was a part of me that knew it was still there, but it didn't feel accessible to me at all. It feels in and out more accessible to me now. There is something that my worldview is just different. I don't think it's ever going to be as bright and shiny as it was before. Uh, I'm so much more attuned to the pain in the world and the loss in the world and the unfairness of the world. And I think part of my coping strategy for that is to lean into joy where I can. It still plays a part for me, but this idea that uh, they're going to be okay or uh, even my sense of safety is is not the same. You can't throw a statistic at me anymore. My sister died from a cancer that has a one in two million like occurrence rate. So there's no logic Mm -hmm. anymore to how likely I feel that thing, bad things are or aren't going to happen. Uh, And joy is just, it's just wider now it, it's a little muted around the edges it's just not quite as mm-hmm. bright and shiny as it was and i'm not sure that it's ever going to be quite the same like i still believe that there's a place for it and i still believe that it sustains me in a lot of ways and that even when we lose someone we're we're allowed to have those moments 
I didn't feel that way at first. It took me a long time to feel right. allowed to feel happy. And I didn't have to feel mm-hmm. badly about that. And I still struggle with that sometimes. Yeah, it doesn't, I don't know. There's a shininess to the world that's just not quite there anymore. And even, I'm not a stranger to lust. I lost my stepmom when she was 59. I lost my stepbrother when he was 19 from an overdose. I've lost grandparents. I've lost people. But then there's the losses that touch you and change your life. And then there are like the losses that floor you. And sister mm-hmm. was the one that bored me. And I don't, and all those losses before colored my world, but this one just like introduced some gray that I don't think is ever going right. to quite go away. Well, that's interesting too, because like how, how could you not be floored by this when she was such a grounding force in your life and such mm-hmm. a stable person so I, i'm struck by actually the language that you're using because mm-hmm. the flooring and the, the idea of being so grounded i guess what i was wondering is of course joy has a place even in our grief which is hard to put together i think culturally for us but we can't appreciate one without the other mm-hmm. and i'm wondering did you feel like there was any, I'm trying not to use this f- phrase, but I can't come up with a better one. Like the toxic positivity. Did you feel some aversion or change in that after losing Melissa? Yeah. I don't know that I've ever been sort of a hardcore, like everything happens for a reason. Everything is happening for your highest good kind mm-hmm. of person. I think I've always called a little bit of bullcrap on that. Definitely now I'm like, and just like this idea that like, it's all going to be okay. It's so interesting because I think, yeah, I mean, it's like positivity is, well, everywhere. <laughs> and I definitely, I definitely have a much more visceral reaction to that now than I did before my sister died. I think, too, there's something for me, and I, I think this is still in formation, so I'm not sure I'm going to articulate it well or that I even quite know what it looks like. I think there's a lot of pressure in our culture and just in the way we look at things to find the positive. And that's how we get through. And I Mm -hmm. think what changed for me is maybe how we get through is we tell the truth about how hard it is and we're able to connect in that way. And that's what gets us through. We don't have to try to put a spin on it. We don't, we can actually tell the truth about how ugly and hard it is. And in that, we're going to find what we need to get through. And so that feels a lot more true to me now than it ever did before. Because it's a relief when people tell the truth. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I'm not alone. <laughs> Which is the thing that you said at the beginning of this conversation about Melissa as being one of the things that you very much valued about her was her ability to tell the truth when nobody else would. I mean, she was so courageous. She sent me a letter in June of June or July of 2020 after her cancer came back and I didn't realize it at the time but that was her that was the in case I die letter here's what you mean to me right started a death and dying book club early in 2021 I was like if we're we don't know what's going to happen but let's talk about if you need someone to go in that dark place with you I will go in that dark place with you and so we would read books and we would talk about it I don't think we give people enough space to talk about those fears and 
to just sit with them in the dark places. We didn't know if she was going to be okay or not. But how many times when someone has cancer, we say, you're going to beat it. You're going to whatever. And we don't know that. And B, it leaves people alone with like, well, what if I don't? Is anybody right. even want to talk about that? Um, so, yeah, I was really, uh, I mean, I think some of the bravest things that she did were would be to t- she turned toward that and she went to talk about it. And then she was also very clear about not wanting to take a lot of extreme measures and was willing to ex- not accept in the sense that I'm at peace with it, I'm going to die, but accept it in the sense that like there might be something here that I can't change and mm-hmm. look like to just know that I die. Um, I don't have to be at peace with that. I don't have to like that. And I think it's the same thing with grief. We don't have to be at peace with it. We don't have to like it. But acceptance doesn't mean that we're at peace with it or we like it. We just understand that we can't change it. Acceptance and approval are definitely not the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think those conversations help prepare you knowing that she had already thought about those things? It helped me some. Uh, It's interesting because we were having those conversations and then some things changed in her brain, which we didn't realize until later what was happening. The conversation sort of stopped in the middle. And I think at the time, Mm -hmm. you know, her conclusion was that, you know, that she had reached any, I don't know that anybody reaches conclusions about, I don't know, maybe they do, but none of us really know. So we're all just kind of our best to have an understanding of how we feel about that about death and about dying. Uh, I don't really know what conclusion she came to about it, but it helped me that we had those conversations. It helped me that she knew that I would go there with her. And it helped me uh, because it's really easy, especially because we were living far apart, to feel like I wasn't really there with her. And it's funny, you know, scrolling through old messages she had sent me or whatever after she died. Which I have only done to varying degrees. I don't even always, there's so much stuff I haven't even looked at. And, but there was a message that she sent. It was like a little meme. And it was something about like, when things are hard, I'll sit with you in the dark. And my sister wrote me back and Mm -hmm. she said, this is totally you. And like, at the time I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's sweet. And now I'm like, oh my God, that means everything to me that she felt like I was that person for her or one of those people for her. Oh, what a gift that I even got that from her and because not everyone gets Mm -hmm. that um so yeah it it the most important thing to me with this horrible situation that I can't change is that I felt like I could do what I could to show up for her and I still have a lot of guilt and regret about things I didn't do I think that's just that comes with grief that's normal right I'm never going to feel like I did everything right I have some signs that I that did what I hope was good enough. Do you want to talk about how this has influenced where you are now and the community space that you're moving towards in grief support and education? Yeah, it sort of happened organically because I would just in my personal life, I would just get on social and talk about grief. I have a newsletter for my coaching business and I really couldn't talk about anything else. So I just talked about that Mm -hmm. and I tied it to, you know, when we're in tough transitions and things like that. And this was also pandemic. And so the response that I got to it, for me, telling my stuff is part of how I cope. And but I didn't expect how much it resonated with people. And so people would say like, gosh, thank you for sharing this. This is so helpful for me. I feel the same way, that kind of thing. 
And I ended up doing a talk on grief. So I was a member of a Unitarian Universalist church and my minister was on my newsletter list. And he was like, this could be a sermon. Do you want to get up and talk about it? I was like, yes, sure. I'll get up and talk about it. So I'm giving this talk about grief. And I just realized how good it felt to be in that space, to know that it was helping people. What I've learned about grief so far, both professionally and personally, is people just need to be witnessed. They need to be able to tell their truth. They need to have people not try to fix it, which is so countercultural. Mm-hmm. And I could go on a whole tangent about capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy and grief and how it helps, not easy it is, but how simple it is, like what people need and what I needed. And so what I really want to create working on is having spaces where people can show up and tell the whole truth and not feel like they have to put a positive spin on it. And I have a very clear rule in all the spaces that I create. We don't give advice. We don't try to fix. Like, we are not broken. Mm -hmm. We don't need someone to come in and fix our grief. We're just Mm -hmm. here to share our experience and a place where we can tell the truth. And so that feels really important to me. I don't think there are enough spaces where we can unequivocally tell the truth. And I think it needs to be not just with our therapist, right? That's nice. That's good. That's very important to have that one-on-one support. But I want to be part of something bigger than that, too. There is sort of like a cultural kind of revolution happening with grief, I think, where people are bringing it out. Um, A lot of people have paved the way for that already. Yeah, for sure. And that's part of our mission as well, is to start to open this conversation so that we normalize grief. Uh, Because in our culture, that's not true. In other cultures, for sure. And when I tell my story, you'll hear the culture that my family's from, that's a little bit more normal, but not so much. It's interesting you mentioned the broken piece because I've been asked about the name of this. Hey. And I don't think people are broken. It's more about right. the family structure being right. broken, the pack, than it is about us as individuals. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you what is your favorite or a few favorite memories that you have of Melissa and you? Gosh, so funny. It's like I give you some great story, but it's like, it's just the little things, right? Like, no, I just have a lot of memories of us as kids, like playing outside. And um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't have uh, great memories of her with my kids. I mean, I remember, you know, growing up as a proud aunt and I have a picture of her. She's laying on the couch and she's got my daughter on her chest and my cat on her knees. And just like what a comforting <laughs> presence it was to have her there at that time. We were silly together. When I was in my early 20s, I was living in North Carolina. She came and visited me. And this was mostly my antics. And bless her, she would just come along. But we made like a music video. We like, were in her 20s. And I was like, let's just be goofy. So we like made these music videos. Where we like make up, we would make up dance routines. And just like, I don't know, there's something really special. I think if you have that relationship with your sibling where you just create these whole worlds together. And so it was really special Mm -hmm. too um, as a kid. And I think even sometimes in certain ways as adults, like create these memories together. I loved singing with her. So she played ukulele and sing. And it was always a really special time when we could sing together and have that time together. I think sometimes it's those smaller memories that keep us close. So thank you for sharing all of that. Have you watched any of those videos? 
lately. I can't find one of them, which is oh. like gutting. I don't know where it is. Oh. Uh, I have. I've watched some things. It's interesting. Been kind of acting things, but I don't always look at them. And I think part of it is it does still make I still have happy, sad to look at those things. Uh, Less painful than it was a year ago, but it still is a pain point. Mm -hmm. But also, I don't want to stumble upon these things later. I love it when I, when Facebook sends me a memory or something that I've forgotten about, Mm -hmm. or uh, I haven't gone through all the cards and letters that she sent me. I think there's a part of me that wants to hold those so that in a few years, I can almost have a little visit from her. I mm-hmm. can't go see them multiple times, but uh, ready to kind of like get to the end of all of the things I might find. So I'm doing it very slowly. I kind of want to stretch it out. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense for sure. To allow yourself those surprises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything we didn't talk about or that you wanted to share that we, we didn't get to? I think the only thing is just like, what helped me, and this was in great part due to Megan Devine's work, was like learning how to just accept that grief was going to be part of my life forever. And mm-hmm. there's something about just allowing grief as an uninvited guest. Like, I don't want it here. I wish it would leave. I didn't invite it in. But here you are at my table and mm-hmm. trying to figure out a way to be in relationship with it has been really helpful for me. Um yeah. And so that's what I'm learning how to do is just live along alongside of it. And I think when I figured out that that's what I had to do, that I didn't have to figure out how to get over it or get through it or heal it or, but just be with it. It's been a huge shift for me. I guess the only other thing I would share is that I do have a, a community. I do work with people in grief. I have a few things out there. So I have a weekly newsletter called The Comfort Corner, and it's really designed to normalize grief, to help people feel seen and understood in their grief, uh, a weekly little tick in your inbox to remind you that like, you're normal. It's the world that's not normal. The way we come mm-hmm. to grief is not mm-hmm. normal, but um, you're normal. You're doing, however you're feeling, normal. That's that. And then I do uh, free monthly groups called the Grief Snack Club, where we come together and um, virtually and um, just a conversation space to talk about and tell the truth about grief. And then I also work with people one-on-one just to help them cope with the challenges of grief and uh, have a place where they can tell the whole truth because I think that's so important to be able to tell our whole story. And there aren't a lot of places mm-hmm. where we can just unravel the whole story. Not all parts of grief are beautiful and not a relationship. Not all the people that we lose, it's complicated. And so giving people a place where they can share that and tell that. So I'm at jenoaklesby.com if, if anyone wants to look me up there or sign up for the Comfort Corner and join some of our spaces. I appreciate you sharing that i was gonna ask how we could contact you so that yeah i've been wanting to jump on there myself and have not our schedules haven't aligned so yeah thank you i really enjoyed talking to you and i look forward to partnering with you and continuing this conversation absolutely i love what you're doing when i first saw what you were doing i was like yes someone please please come in (laughs) because there is such a void and uh it's just nice to know that there's a community out there of people who do, who are looking for this and do need it. And it is, is needed. So I'm so glad that you're doing it. Thank you. You too. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Our theme song was written by Joe Melwood and Brian Dean and was performed by Joe Melwood. If you would like more information on The Broken Pack, go to our website, 
thebrokenpack.com. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter, Wild Grief, to learn about opportunities and receive exclusive information and grieving tips for subscribers. Information on that, our social media, and on our guests can be found in the show notes wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow, subscribe, and share. Thanks again. You're second guessing, or you never know, you just never know.